Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Last week, our friend and writer for our Covenant blog, the Reverend Max Stewart, had the pleasure of speaking from his home with the renowned theologian, poet, and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And we are thrilled to air that interview today. Bishop Williams has recently come out with a new book, The Way of St. Benedict, published by Bloomsbury. The book is available to read or purchase, of course, and it is also available on audiobook for those whose eyes are tired from all those Zoom meetings. But the paper version, of course, has the advantage that you can dog-ear pages, take notes, and read passages again and again. And like anyone who has ventured, say, grace and necessity, or tokens of trust and introduction to Christian belief, you may want to go for the book. In this new book, Bishop Williams explores the far-reaching and surprisingly pervasive effects of the ancient Benedictine rule of life in society, in the church as well as in civic life and culture. He also asks what the rule might teach us about current issues, questions, and phenomena in the 21st century. In his own words, this is simply an invitation to look at various current questions through the lens of the rule and to reflect on aspects of Benedictine history that might have something to say to us. Now let's hear from Father Mack and Bishop Williams. This is Father Max Stewart, and it is my great privilege and pleasure to be speaking today with Bishop Rowan Williams, uh, who has very kindly joined me to uh, discuss his latest book called The Way of St. Benedict, which was published this year by Bloomsbury. Bishop Rowan, thank you so very much for taking the time for this conversation. Not at all. Thank you for asking. 
Now, uh, Bishop Rowan, whenever I've um, heard anyone ask you to list some of the major theological and spiritual influences on your thinking, there, there's always one name that seems to top the list for you, and that's the, the name of St. Augustine. And you, uh, you, you, you published a, a book a, a few years ago, gathering together really decades worth of work you had done on that great Bishop of Hippo. And uh, this book, the, the Way of Saint Benedict, seems to be uh, something similar in, in that it's it's partly a gathering together of a number of things you've written over the years on Saint Benedict. So I, I, I wonder if if we might begin by just uh, having you say say a bit about how Benedict's influence on your life and ministry compares with that of Augustine. That's a very interesting question. Um, I suppose, in a way. Benedict's influence probably came before Augustine's in the sense that I started having some contact with Benedictine communities when I was a student in Cambridge back in the late 1960s. Uh, that was really before I'd read Augustine in any depth, but I was attracted to finding out more about the Benedictine life simply because this was a life which was, well, it was a life, you know, it was um, a shape of discipline, a shape of understanding work and prayer and community life. And I had the privilege of spending some time in Benedictine monasteries with friends when I was a student and afterwards. And that became a really very important point of reference for me. So yes, it goes back a long way. And um, while Augustine was for me the huge influence at the intellectual level, it's probably Benedict and the Benedictine tradition that's been more of a, a marker at the spiritual level. And uh, of course, it, 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 it certainly seems to be the case that, that the Benedictine tradition is so deeply woven into Anglicanism uh, in, in general, just through the, um, the kind of rhythms of prayer that, um, that the Anglican tradition has, has tried to preserve in cathedral churches and, and, and cathedral liturgies and, and so forth. And you, you mentioned in, in the book, one of the chapters is about sort of the um, initial mission of uh, Augustine of Canterbury and his monks um, and sort of the kind of missionary monastic witness that they represent. Would you say that 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 indeed is is in some ways at the heart of the Anglican charism, a kind of uh, missionary monastic ecclesial culture? I'd certainly like to think so. I, I think of some of those um, great Anglican preachers in the Reformation era who said in so many words, what we're trying to do with the Book of Common Prayer is make every household a kind of monastery. That is, we're trying to provide a structure of prayerful, quiet, slowing down, going deeper in scripture and psalmody which is available for everybody in the vernacular and which they can use daily. So you can look at the Book of Common Prayer as a you know, very simplified version of a monastic rule and deliberately written so as to be accessible to everybody, not just Latin speakers. So that's a very, a very strong element there. But it's also interesting, I think, how the, um, the monastic mission mixture, so to speak, survives in Roman Catholic Benedictine communities of the English tradition as well, how for centuries a great deal of Roman Catholic mission in Britain, certainly in England and Wales, was done by English Benedictines from the continent, often um, coming back to this country illegally, working underground. Some of them were martyred for their, their beliefs. And that sense of the mission in English Benedictine tradition has also gone on and been a very significant thread in English Benedictine monasteries, a fascinating feature which isn't, I think, paralleled everywhere in Europe. But yes, I, I like the idea of Anglicanism as having those two lungs to breathe with, as it were, because we've always said, haven't we, as Anglicans, that our liturgy is the, the heartbeat of our identity. And at the same time, that identity has been very deeply bound up with trying to create a literate, self-aware, self-critical Christian population. So maybe those two things really do intersect and interweave in that way. 
that notion of self-criticism is one that emerged for me a number of times as I was reading your book, and it's it's a recurring theme in in, in much of your work. One way that, that it comes up in, in your reading of the rule is your sense that the rule is partly designed to restrain a kind of self-conscious, self-dramatizing fantasy of the ego, sort of the, the importance of getting over this self-consciousness. What exactly do you mean by, by self-consciousness in the context of the rule? And what about it is, is so destructive to holiness in community? The strange thing is that uh, there are two phrases which are very close to each other and yet seem to mean almost exact opposites, self-consciousness and self-awareness. When we say that somebody is behaving self-consciously, we usually mean they're behaving rather artificially. They're, um, they're working for an audience. You know, They're thinking, how does this look? They're thinking, isn't it interesting that I'm doing this? They're thinking, what's the effect? And yes, they're looking at themselves from outside. Self-awareness is much more being present in what you're doing to such an extent that you're not actually not actually thinking about it. You're thinking with your body. You're thinking with your whole self, responding directly, unselfconsciously, and attentively to what's there. So when there's a situation that arises, you don't think, oh, now how's this going to make me look? You're going to think, what do I need to look at? And that balance, I think, is part of what the spiritual tradition in general, but the Benedictine rule in particular, really focuses on. To be self-aware in that way is to be really involved in where you are and what you're doing. Every bit of what you're doing is worthwhile and significant, so you need to inhabit it, you need to be present in it. And being present means you really attend to and respond to what's actually there, not what you'd like to be there, part of what obedience means. And through that loving submission to what is real, you become more real, more truthful in your human identity before God. So as I say, two ideas that are on the, on the face of it, quite close, but in practice, take you in very different directions, self-consciousness, self-awareness. One line uh, in the book that stuck out to me on, on that is this idea that the, the rule inculcates a kind of un, unselfconscious workmanlike spirit. And you use that image of a, a workshop uh, as a kind of running thread throughout the, the book. Yeah. Yes, because St. Benedict talks about the tools of good works. As I said in the book, that always conjures up for me a sort of entrance porch in a house with some gumboots and raincoats, maybe some gardening tools stacked in the corner. You know, it's it's a very domestic picture. It's what's it's what you need to do to equip yourself. You need to be familiar with your tools. You need to know what kind of environment you're working in. There's there's a picture that comes to mind here. Actually, one of the essays in the book, one of the more two more rather technical essays in the book, is about um, Abbot Cuthbert Butler, great scholar and um, teacher and abbot of Downside in England early in the 20th century. And there's a, a memoir of him written by a fellow monk at the time, which says that um, although Abbot Butler was one of the foremost Latin scholars in Europe, although he was somebody who wrote a hugely influential book on the mystical tradition, he edited early monastic literature, he was always absolutely scrupulous about his household duties take his turn in ringing the bell for for meals. He would take his turn doing the garden. And the chap writing this memoir says, you'd see him going out to do his work in the garden every other afternoon, wearing an old pair of corduroy trousers and a, a cloth cap on backwards and a clerical collar around his neck <laughs> and a, a spade over his shoulder. And he said, it says something for Abbot Butler's great distinction that even in this strange attire, no one could have thought him other than a very remarkable man. <laughs> so 
you know, he was he was somebody who, as again, I put it at various points in the book, he knew about the prose as well as the poetry. He knew about the um, the undramatic sorts of thing you have to do to to keep common life going. Yeah, you mentioned the the prose and poetry uh, theme. I was uh, struck by that in, in in particular because one of the uh, w- one of the essays that uh, has been influential for me in the past, I guess, is um, an essay that John Henry Newman wrote on the on the mission of Saint Benedict, uh, in which he identifies as the the discriminating badge of the Benedictine tradition amongst the the various schools of church history, the element of poetry. So it was interesting to see you you kind of balancing a reading of the rule as as being Yes, about poetry, but also as as ha- having that poetry grounded in in the the prosaic uh, wor- workmanlike spirit, as as you said, um, that that the rule encourages. Yeah, that's right. Because I I guess that part of what Newman was thinking of was the uh, the poetry of the liturgy. Every time I've taken part in monastic liturgy, one of the things that that comes home to me is what a an amazingly rich diet that traditional monastic offices are. You have a kind of um, invitation to, to swim around in this vast sea of scriptural and traditional illusion. You have bits of scripture talking to each other in the act of worship, you know, in the, in the antiphons of the Psalms and different readings and different um, Psalms for particular holy days. It's as if the Bible is being invited to, as I say, to talk to itself, to reflect on itself. And that is poetic in a very deep way. And yet, you come out of that environment and what you have to do with it all, what you've learned in that swimming around in the sea of scripture and tradition, what you've then got to do is create a just, sustainable, friendly life with your immediate neighbours. You have to keep the wheels turning in this community of flawed and difficult human beings. One of the chapters is called Benedict and the Future of Europe. And the, your, your your discussion in that chapter uh, raises sort of some interesting questions to me in, in relation to maybe other uh, contemporary ways of positioning the Benedictine tradition in relation to kind of uh, society and, and societal renewal and so forth. You mentioned the work of, of Rod Dreher and, and his idea of the Benedict option, uh, an idea with which, as, as, as you suggest, you're, you're partially sympathetic. But it's also clear that, that you're charting out something of a, of a different trajectory for Benedictine principles in modern life than what you see in Dreher. How would you articulate that difference? I suppose the two things where I'd want to put some questions to the Benedict option thing, would be, first of all, there's the Benedictine tradition of hospitality. Right from the start, we're told in the rule that in the community, every guest has to be received like Christ himself. And that's a pretty tough ask, isn't it? You're expected to see every stranger on your doorstep. There's no hint that you're just talking about other monks here. Every stranger on the doorstep as an image of Christ. Now, if if that kind of hospitality is what characterizes the Benedictine community, the one thing it can't finally do is close its doors and turn inwards. Now, I'm not suggesting that's um, in any simple way what Rod Dreher is inviting us to do, but reading his book, I had this sense there was all the time a bit of a let's get the wagons to a circle spirit to it, which to me grated a bit against that, um, that stress on welcome in, in the rule itself. So that's one thing. And I suppose the second is more historical than textual. And that is that throughout its history, the Benedictine life has actually engaged. It has educated and educated people not just for the monastic life, but for life in in the wider world. It's been a publicly generative sort of life. It's had it's had consequences. It's um, it's helped to shape people who've 
gone on to make a difference in in the wider social world. So I think if we are looking to Benedict for inspiration for our own day, we should factor that in, that right from the start, when you think of um, all those people who were educated by Benedictine monks from the 6th, 7th century onwards, and there's been that concern to, to create a certain kind of mindset which could make a difference, not just in a context of believers propping each other up, but in, in that wider, more risky world. You say helpfully in the book that the rule did not set out to save civilization. And as you just said, it's, uh, it, it has been generative as much as it has been conservative. And that sort of ties in with the point about self-consciousness too, right? I mean, the, I think it does. Yes. Benedict yes. didn't try to be, to be conservative. No, and Benedict doesn't set out with any kind of social program. I think He's, he says almost, or we can hear him saying, do what God is asking you to do here and now. And you might be amazed what results are released. And that's pretty much what happened, I think, in the history of Benedictine monasticism. The Benedictine monks didn't set out to create or sustain European civilization or to save European civilization. They got on with taking seriously God and one another and the world around them. And remarkable things then happened. Obviously, civilization right now, the world over, is um, facing a time of very serious crisis. And uh, in in some ways, the the time of the coronavirus is a is is a fitting time for this book to be coming out. Not only because it speaks to themes of withdrawal and solitude, as you might expect in a book on monasticism, but you you also show, as as you've been hinting at, that the rule has quite a lot to say to the contemporary world across a wide range of issues, many of which are particularly pressing at the moment about the nature of authority and decision-making, about economics, about the nature of work and its place in kind of integral human lives and communities. What might the Benedictine tr tradition have to teach us in the midst of the present crisis? The Benedictine tradition doesn't, doesn't focus on asceticism for its own sake. But it does have a very strong investment in what you might call business-like simplicity. What do we actually need to get things done? And one of the things we need to get things done is a climate of dependability and trust, where you know that the work you're involved in is work that is owned by everybody in the community. Everyone's invested in the work working, as you might say. And that, that says something to a very, very divided society where we don't really have that trust that everybody is in the same boat. Politicians sometimes say, well, we're all in this together. And I think the skeptics are right who say, well, actually, you know, we're not, or some of us are more in it than others. There isn't that trust. And so I think it's quite important that we ask ourselves in, in our societies, especially in the Western world, how do we actually create more, more stable and more trustful communities where there is a genuine sense of everyone's contribution being valued and everybody sharing something of the cost and the struggle too. So that's that's one thing. And another thing that certainly does cross my mind is very pertinent at the moment is the way in which Benedict um, rather counterculturally says, in the community, you may find it helps to listen to the youngest and apparently least experienced member of the community, just as you listen to a, an older and more sage presence, because the younger person simply may have something to say that nobody else has. And in the context of a lot of our political and social thinking these days, 
and what are the activist movements around, not least in the environmental area. We are learning, I think, to listen to younger people because, well, they're talking about their future. We need to listen to them because it's very much their business. So I think all through the rule, there are little hints like that which come out, which make us think not so much how can the Benedictine monastery be a kind of template for society, but more what are the particular habits of mind and heart that this rule is meant to inculcate, and where do we lack them and what can we do about it? So that, as I say, that basic principle of business-like simplicity, that sense of quiet attentiveness to what's really there and what we'd like to be there, that patience in listening to uncomfortable people, young people, people you wouldn't necessarily initially want to take advice from. All of that's part of building that fundamentally trustful, fundamentally stable community, which alone can be humanly creative. One of the uh, sort of political virtues that you mentioned that the, that the rule attempts to generate is uh, a kind of appreciation for the use and meaning of time. And I'm curious, uh, especially in the in the present uh, context where things seem to be changing so, so rapidly almost every day, what does it look like for us to be patient and, and, and to, to take time as the rule might encourage? Well, this is a rather indirect response, but I... I'm just aware very much at the moment that the circumstances a lot of people are living in, in isolation with the, the pandemic threatening all of us, those circumstances perhaps intensify for a lot of people the importance of having a daily rhythm, not just being faced with shapeless time, a kind of endless weekend. But people begin to find they need some structures, they need some handholds to, to walk with. And so people do invent little rhythms and rituals of themselves in, in isolation. I've been interested to watch this in the life of my, my son and his, his friends, watching them develop these regularities to break up the time and cope with it in that way. So that, that's one thing we might reflect on at the moment. But more generally, I've, I've sometimes thought and said in the past, one of our problems as a, a late modern society is the notion that they're really ideally ought to be no gap between wanting and getting. And there was a slogan which was used in advertising in Britain about 20 or 30 years ago, take the waiting out of wanting. And I thought at the time, and I think even more now, that that is <laughs> the root of all evil in some ways. Um, there ought to be no gap between my wanting and my getting. But there is, because we're in a world where we're always negotiating with our environment, finding and feeling our way, where things are not just organized in order to fall in line with what we want. And all of us, with any sense at all, I think, know that to grow up in a world like this is to become aware of the unavoidability of waiting at times. And, and the challenge is not so much to take the waiting away, it's learning to live in intelligently and positively when we can't do anything but wait, which is quite a bit of the time, actually. There are things we can't force. There are kinds of growth we can't hurry along. And that needn't be a matter of, as it were, sitting, fuming, checking our watches every couple of minutes to see how much time has elapsed, but just learning to, well, to state the obvious, to be in the present, to, again, to attend, to be open in the present moment, and to accept 
the world is the way it is. I think it's it's very significant, perhaps in the Easter season especially, to remember that the resurrection of Christ changes everything. And yet for it to change everything, it's going to take the whole of history to work out. <laughs> and the end of the world does not come on Easter Sunday. And the, the rather unfashionable tradition which says that in the 40 days between Easter and Ascension, Jesus told his apostles all sorts of things about the future of the church. Well, I, I slightly doubt that, but I do see the point of trying to make some theological sense of this time-taking. Jesus returns to the apostles, and now there are things to think about and things to do, and there is a history to plan for. And the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, that the spirit of Jesus is poured out on his church, does not mean that history is over. It means that the work of God in us has begun, and it'll take the time it takes. In that idea of the dynamic of waiting and wanting, I think of that great idea from Augustine about the, um, the, the Christian life being one of a kind of a, a constant stretching of desire um, sort of out to, out to God. Yes, it, it's, um, it's one of those areas where I find the intellectual and imaginative world of Augustine and the more practical world of Benedict really do dovetail. Augustine, like so many of the Greek fathers, is always telling us, if you think you've got it, then you haven't, where God's concerned. And therefore, you have to find a way of putting one foot in front of the other in the time you occupy, the history you occupy, and make the best sense you can of it. And I think that's why, through the Middle Ages, the Augustinian theological vision and the Benedictine liturgical and spiritual vision really did go hand in hand in European culture. The cover of the book shows the iconic worn steps uh, leading up to the chapter house at Wells Cathedral. And it's a vivid reminder of, of the commitment to place particular dirt and particular stone that the Benedictine tradition embodies. It, it seems like in, in some ways, many of our modern crises, not, not least the, the coronavirus, are crises of place. With the coronavirus, you know, um, I mean, it's a, it's a global crisis precisely because so many of us fly around the world all the time. And the effect of the coronavirus has, has been to press uh, many of us even more towards kind of virtual places through video conferencing and so forth. And of course, I mean, place is, is a, a deeply relevant question in all kinds of contexts in the contemporary situation, not, not least the situation of displaced people all, all over the world, refugees and so forth. What role might the local church have, do you think, in coming years in, in recovering or rethinking a sense of, of place in, in light of Benedictine principles? Or what, what does place mean in our age in, in, in general? It's a big issue, isn't it? I, I share the unease about a world where sometimes it seems as if the, the ideal situation is to be on the move all the time. And I think there's a lot to be said simply for putting down roots of some sort, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in a, a literal physical place, whether it's in the habits of discipline and rule of life. Put down the roots, let that teach you. As the desert monks say, stay in your cell and your cell will teach you all you need to know. But I don't, I don't think that's perhaps quite at the heart of it all. What can the local church do? Well, a local church, when it knows its business, I think, is always trying to let the people around know that here is a place, literally a church building, um, not quite so literally, a human community. Here is a place where nobody is going to be fighting you to gain advantage. Ideally, you know, this is not a place where people are trying to press their 
their interests and their case. This is a place that exists so that it will be welcoming. To me, that's, that's something fairly basic about the church. It's not there to fight its own corner, to be defensive about its own rights and privileges. It's there to, to keep a door open on behalf of God, the God who doesn't have any interests to defend or corners to fight. And that's where I associate Benedict and Augustine with another of my great heroes and influences, and that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he writes in his work on ethics and in his letters from prison about the danger of the church becoming obsessed with its own security and safety, rather than taken up with the wonder of God's miraculous saving welcome and the need at all costs to keep that alive within society. So if the church, in Bonhoeffer's terms, if the church tries to defend its own space and its own safety for its own sake, then it's somehow ceasing to be really the church when it's working so that there may be in society a real witness to the generosity and the, the mercy of God. Fair enough. That's wonderful. I, I, I had noted actually the suggestive references to Bonhoeffer in two different places in, in the book. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a surprising name maybe to appear in a book on, on St. Benedict. Well, of course, Bonhoeffer himself was someone who, who wrote some of the best words on Christian community in the 20th century, so he needed to know about it. You mentioned that, that there are two sort of more um, uh, theologically and historically technical chapters in the book. One is, uh, as you mentioned, the, the chapter on uh, Abbot Cuthbert Butler, and the other is a, is a chapter on the trajectory of medieval monastic reform uh, from roughly the 9th to 11th centuries and then culminating in St. Bernard and the Cistercian movement. And one of your theses in that chapter is that although uh, in that trajectory coming up to St. Bernard and the, and the Cistercian movement, the rule takes on a character of, of a kind of quasi-legal text, or for much of its history, it, it was not treated as a, as a hard and fast legal code, but rather was a kind of a set of firm and agreed guidelines for common life, which were adaptable to different circumstances. And the function of which was just to keep people in one place, uh, to return to that theme, long enough to be open to God's gifts in that place and, and the other people that God placed there. Those who are familiar with recent Anglican history, uh, in, in which obviously you have, of course, played a very significant role, um, may hear in that idea an echo of the rationale behind the development of a covenant for the Anglican communion. I'm curious how, how you would articulate the, the difference between a legal code on the one hand and a set of firm and agreed guidelines for common life on the other. Maybe the, 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 the dangers of the former and how something like an Anglican covenant might embody the latter uh, in, in light of this Benedictine history. Well, that's a really fascinating connection to make. Um, but I, I do recognize what you're saying there. And I think what, what I'm arguing in the article and what I'd want to apply to the present situation is something like this. Initially, as you put it, the rule of Benedict is a rule that allows people to to stay in the same house without killing each other, you know, to, to coexist, to be grateful for positive about one another, and above all, to, to spend a substantial amount of time every day with their faces turned not to each other, but together to God. So not as it were staring each other out, but in harmony, turning towards the God that they're both answerable to. And to me, that's, that's a very life-giving image that community exists when we are all conscious of a calling and an invitation that we share, 
the God who looks at us together and invites each of us to be with him, rather than just obsessing all the time about what our neighbour is, is up to and what we ought to be doing about it. It doesn't answer all the questions, but I think as a foundation, it's, it's not a bad principle. So when I was reflecting on the covenant in Anglican terms, I suppose part of what I was hoping for was that different bits of the Anglican family would, for all their disagreements, both cultural and theological, find some way of turning their faces together to God and saying, well, mysteriously, we have been called to hold together in this place, to look side by side towards the God we worship in common, the Christ who, who has saved us and transfigures us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps not expect too much from our unity beyond that. But actually, of course, that's expecting quite a lot. It's expecting a, a degree of, I suppose, spiritual, oh, I don't know, almost exuberance and generosity. So fascinated by and absorbed by the God who's addressed us in Christ, that um, what we most want to say to one another is, look at that, <laughs> in a, you know, an inviting way. And I suppose the covenant was trying to see, well, what would be the minimum conditions for making that, that work? What might we promise to one another? What sort of trust in one another might we create in order for that to happen? So, I mean, that's all very much still work in progress, isn't it? But, well, yes, I think your association of, of the covenant ideal with something of a Benedictine background is, is not at all wrong. And certainly what you were saying there seems to dovetail with the idea of, again, unself-consciousness, sort of turning away from, from one's own self or even one's neighbor and, and realizing that we're all looking at someone else uh, together, namely God. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes, that's right. And as I like to say, the church exists because God is the God he is, a God who is known to us in Jesus Christ, a God who promises welcome and mercy, a God who offers transformation and communion. You know, that's, that's the God we're talking about. And looking into that mystery is more than a lifetime's work, certainly. <laughs> Certainly the God that Benedict saw and uh, whose witness we are very grateful for. And we're very grateful to you, Bishop Rowan, for speaking with me uh, about this book today and for uh, encouraging us in the way of St. Benedict. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.